This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store with the new Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code TREK4. You're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek comics and books podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, we uh, took a week off last week for Easter, although we had Una McCormick with us on the orb, so we had a little crossover. So it's been two weeks since we've been on Literary Treks. What have you been up to during that time? Well, um, I actually fell down a rabbit hole um, during an Easter egg hunt and have just now emerged. Are you sure it was a rabbit hole or was that a Jeffrey's tube? You know, there was a lot of gin laying around. And so (laughs) I think that I may have just fallen into Argyle's special stash. Um, The problem is I don't know how to get back. And that gin was really good. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's Argyle's problem. He's been living in the Jeffries tubes since season one of The Next Generation because he just doesn't know how to get out. Except to get to that very, very bottom lower deck where he sells his gin, you know, as we've discussed many times on The Ready Room. Yeah, well, and two, um, he needs to find a way to um, not only sell his gin, but, you know, he gets lonely. He needs some companionship. Uh, I think he meets up with Leffler down there every once in a while. And, yeah. <laughs> That's where she's been. That's, yeah, she's not running for Senate. She's hanging out with Argyle. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I'm going to go have to check out those Jeffries tubes myself now. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we just jump on in to our news here today? We've got a little bit of book news, and then we're going to talk about ongoing number 19, the backstory of Scotty. And then in the feature, Matthew, you're going to be flying solo this week without me with your interview with James Swallow about the stuff of dreams. Yeah, it's going to, uh, it was going to be a great interview, I think. I really like talking to James. Uh, the last time was such a blast, and so I think people really will enjoy our conversation. But uh, the first thing we wanted to do is uh, we had both gotten our copy. Uh, the DK Visual Dictionary for Star Trek has finally come out. And actually, I was uh, at Barnes & Noble the other day as well, and I saw this on the promo table, uh, a bunch of oh, copies. Great. And so I was really excited to see that. Um, but we just wanted to talk through some of the things uh, for people who might not have one, might need a little uh, you know, impetus to buy one. So, Chris, what were some of your general impressions the first time uh, you you know you got a chance to crack this open and look through it? What did you think? Well, my first impression was that it's very beautifully done. You know, I'm familiar with the DK Visual Dictionaries on other topics, 
I think I've mentioned on here before or on the Ready Room that Isaac, who does all the illustration for the Trek FM website and has worked with me with my company for many years, actually used to work for DK in London and did a lot of work on the visual dictionaries himself. So this is a a format that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, At first glance, you know, I thought it was very beautifully done. Uh, I like the information. I like that it's not too much information. You know, it's not Star Trek, the encyclopedia. They're not going to bury you in information. It has a nice balance between interesting and useful text and uh, very striking images. And I'll talk a little bit more about the images, you know, here as we go along. But uh, the other thing I guess I would say, and I think you mentioned this on a previous show, is that it's a really nice way to get your kids interested in Star Trek, I think, because the way it's presented is very kid-friendly as well. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was thinking. This is really the perfect thing to get somebody who's liking new Trek and really wants a way to kind of get exposed to all of the rest of Star Trek. This is the perfect way to do it. I mean, it walks through all the different crews. It walks through all the different aliens that they'd really need to know. Um, It's got some of the big, you know, starships in it as well for people to be able to see and get used to. And so... I really do like that a lot. Um, I'm going to have to say, though, I think that my favorite page was was really the Next Generation page. And there's this beautiful picture of Beverly. Um, she's got her tricorder and her red hair is flowing. And You really, just, you really just love wonderful. your Beverly, don't you? I, I, I do. I can't lie about this. So I really like that. But all kidding aside... Um, the layout of this is like all of your uh, other DK books, and yet I, I just um, I think this is really beautifully done, uh, and I'm surprised honestly that this hasn't been done beforehand uh, because yeah yeah I, you know this just it, seems like a no brainer almost. It seems like it. You know, Star Trek is an interesting franchise. It's an interesting property when it comes to merchandising because. I don't, I mean, I don't know the actual numbers, but I have to think that in terms of diehard fandom, Star Trek must have a much larger fan base than Star Wars because, of course, Star Wars may appeal to the broader audience a little bit more than Star Trek, but Star Trek fans who just buy and buy merchandise and are so, so dedicated to the show, that number... I think has to be larger than Star Wars fans. Yet you see this kind of thing for Star Wars all the time. You know, there have been Star Wars visual dictionaries. There are, of course, Star Wars Legos. There's Star Wars everything. And you just don't see that so much with Star Trek. So so it is kind of surprising that this hasn't been done sooner. And uh, hopefully this signals a resurgence in Star Trek merchandising and uh recognition that the fan base is, I guess, at least in the eyes of marketers, revitalized a bit. I think the difference you see there is that Star Wars has always been seen as kind of a kid's thing. Um, Adults love it, obviously. I'm a huge fan of the wars, I'm not going to lie. But Star Trek has always been seen more as an adult franchise. And so um, getting kids into it is a lot harder because in a lot of ways, you know, you watch Next Generation episodes or Deep Space Nine, even original series, a lot of the ideas are, are more cerebral. You know, it's it's a much more of a thinking man's type of show. And so 
But this is a perfect way to do this, um, to get kids into Star Trek and to help them um, kind of experience that wonder through the visual images and then, you know, what they'll read about, say, Romulans or Klingons. And it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And I mean, who doesn't, you know, want to flip open to the Klingon page and see this huge batleth? And I mean, what kid doesn't want that? <laughs> what parent? <laughs> How many parents don't want their kids to have a batleth? <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just—I don't have kids, so I'm just speaking as you know somebody who used to be one. I would have wanted one of these. Exactly, and and I'm a parent, and when I see a batleth like that, the only image in my mind is my daughter falling on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I really liked and I thought was really interesting was uh, you know having say like the page on Romulans. You get this really interesting picture where you have the 23rd century Romulans next to uh-huh. Romulans from Nemesis. And just the difference you, you really gives you a picture of how far Star Trek has come from its original roots um, with TOS all the way to, you know, the very last film in the Prime Universe. Right. Yeah, Th- that's a good point. One thing that I noticed, uh, especially on the Vulcan pages is that along the same lines that you're saying there, there are a lot of items, a lot of pieces of technology, a lot of cultural items on the Vulcan page that come both from the original series and from Enterprise, and of course from different spots in between. But those are the two series that had the most Vulcan stuff in them. And what I noticed is how well those items blend together, that... Some of the stuff was created in the 60s. Some of it was created in the 2000s. Uh, But the way it's presented here, it doesn't really feel that way. It just all really kind of works very well together. You know, I I really agree with you. I think it looks beautiful, uh, just the way that they did that. And uh, it really shows how much I think the crew on Enterprise really cared what things looked like. Uh, when it came especially to somebody like the Vulcans. And then, of course, my, my favorite part is is you turn that page, and it's Andorians. And, <laughs> of course. You know, um, my, the funniest course, thing Jeffrey is... Of course, Jeffrey Combs is there. Exactly. The center. <laughs> everywhere. I mean, all over the Andorian pages. Um, in fact, I think there are three different pictures of Jeffrey Combs on two pages. So that's that's pretty good work. For, for him, um, I, I think he's uh, paid by the page um, and the picture. So, uh, but he it was truly just, is everywhere. <laughs> it was interesting seeing the look of the Andorians, obviously from the original series, and then of course the Enterprise Andorians. Uh, so yeah, and the, all the, the fight scenes. I mean, you open this page and it's full of fight scenes. So. Um, it really is. He's yeah. he's holding a holding a phaser or a phaser rifle or ready to punch someone. Or, there's just the one shot of him shaking hands with the Tellarite. Uh, and, and you know that probably in his mind while he's shaking his hand, he's probably actually picturing it as as a kind of arm wrestling or something, right? Yeah, I'm uh <laughs> I was I was I was wishing that it had been the picture of him and Archer battling, you know with the uh, special Andorian cleavers, ice cleavers, just that, you know, that would have been epic right there, but oh well. You can only put so many Andorian fight scenes on a a page. That's right, yeah. 
Well, you know, while we're on the Vulcan page, uh, flip back one here. One thing I found really interesting here, and this is something that I've never really paid a whole lot of attention to in the series, and it's why I like these types of dictionaries, because you get to see elements of Star Trek that kind of just go by you on the screen. One of them here is at the bottom of page 11, they show these syllabic cubes. Now, they they look a lot like dice from Dungeons and Dragons, if you've ever played D&D, various different shapes, multi-sided dice, but they have glyphs on them, and they're syllabic glyphs, and the dictionary says that different symbols combine to create new words. Symbols represent syllables in ancient tongue, and I find that interesting for me as someone who reads kanji. You know, I read Chinese characters because I speak Japanese and read Japanese. Uh, I think what a lot of people don't maybe don't realize about languages like Japanese is that they're syllabic. The writing system is syllabic, so every character represents a syllable, not just a sound, like in the Latin alphabet. And the kanji has evolved over time. Uh, you can look at the same kanji from thousand years ago and the one now, and it's really changed drastically. And I found that really cool here on the Vulcan page because they're, you know, we know what the Vulcan script tends to look like, and that's actually on the page here as well. And showing this shows how much thought the writers give to the culture of the races we see in Star Trek, that they would actually go so far as to create dice like these to set up the fact that the Vulcan language evolved from a more primitive glyph-based writing system to the very, uh, very um, ornate script that we usually see with Vulcan. And I just thought that was really cool. And it's the kind of thing that you get reading a dictionary like this one that you otherwise maybe never really clue in on in Star Trek. Well, you're getting that wonderful opportunity to really see the props up close in a way that you haven't. You know, they've taken great pictures of these props and and put them into the dictionary. And it it really does bring to light some of those things you probably wouldn't even have been able to see. Um, I was a little disappointed that in the Vulcan section, we weren't given Tuvok's logic blocks. Or his PowerPoint presentations. Yes. um, (laughs) I, I felt really just that we were robbed because I was hoping to make some logic blocks of my own, but apparently I'm just going to have to go watch Voyager and keep pausing those scenes for long hours at a time. Right. But you can eventually make your own by freeze framing. So that's true. That's true. Maybe you should wait until Voyager remastered on Blu-ray comes out. Then you can get a really clear view as you freeze those. I think you've got, I think you've got the best idea right there. (laughs) So we've talked about a lot of the, I mean, the, the pros of this book, there, there were a few things I was a bit disappointed about in here, just to be fair. And it's probably me being picky as a designer, but I felt like there is a lot of inconsistency in image quality. I think that we are seeing, in a lot of cases, the difference technologically, and this highlights how long Star Trek has been around, but we're seeing the difference between film-based photography, which has aged, you know, then the negatives have aged at this point, and modern digital photography, because as we move into late Voyager and into Enterprise, we have a lot of really, really beautiful, crisp, crisp photos. And as we go back to the earlier series, we get a lot of fuzzy images. And interestingly, the images from the next generation, not the original series, 
are the images which I think suffer the most in quality. And it's especially highlighted on a page that has Loaxana Troy and flocks together on the same page. And it's quite a, a contrast. Yeah. And that's, that's really to, to be expected. And, and um, I guess looking through the dictionary, I wasn't drawn out too much by that, but you're definitely right. And um, it is too bad in some ways that uh, they, there isn't kind of that uniformity um, yeah. in, in the look. I, I, I'm sure it's me being a designer. My eye catches these things very quickly. But I did have to wonder on a few, like Picard and Cisco. I felt like there must be some really, really high-quality promotional photos of them in uniform that are of better quality than the ones that were used in the book here. So I was just a little bit surprised at a few of the shots like that, but th- that are so prominent. They're like the centerpiece of a spread. Well, it was okay to me because they got the picture of Janzia in her bathing suit. Perfect. So for me, this dictionary gets nine trill slugs out of 10. Okay. That's excellent. Excellent. Uh, oh, I will say you mentioned Janzia in her swimsuit. I will say that for the Vorta, they did choose the best looking Vorta that ever appeared on Deep Space Nine. They did. <laughs> for the photo. So uh, I agree with you. This is, um, apart from my small quibbles from a design standpoint, uh, the presentation is fantastic. It has great, very interesting text, uh, beautiful artwork. And I'm actually going to give this dictionary 9 out of 10 Bajoran sextants. And if you don't know what that is, go buy the dictionary, turn to the Bajoran page, and you'll find out. Well, the next thing that we had, Chris, was the uh, some Into Darkness news um, and what's going to be happening in comics after Darkness. And uh, there was some great news that came out um, with uh, Mike Johnson, who is at WonderCon and Anaheim, talking about what they're going to be doing with the comic series after the film comes out. And he had some really cryptic things to say. Uh, what were those, Chris? Well, uh, so, yeah, the spoilers have been redacted by Space Ninjas, I see. So we're okay. Dang, those Space Ninjas. Away. I know, those Space Ninjas. They're always coming in when you don't expect them because that's, you know, that's what they do. Anyway, uh, they, they, they asked him, this was, he was talking to CBR News about After Darkness. And they asked him, what kind of themes will you be exploring in After Darkness? Because I think that's what everyone is curious about. It's going to pick up right after the movie, and it's part of ongoing. It's issues 21, 22, 23, but it's going to be billed as an official sequel to the movie. And so that's why everyone's wondering, well, what does that mean? You know, what what happens in the movie and how will that be continued? And he says that the themes are going to be family, duty, wonder, love, lust, Xeno geophysics. So I'm really looking forward to the Xeno geophysics storylines that we're, that we're going to be getting here. Well, I'm just worried about new Vulcan. I mean, is this planet in trouble again? I mean, oh goodness, these guys just can't catch a break. Um, I really liked the question though that if if uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character would be in After Darkness, <laughs> um, yeah. it's kind of like the after party for Into Darkness. And uh, unfortunately, no, Sherlock Holmes is not going to be in this story, which I was disappointed by. I like the way they ask, too. (laughs) He says, nice try. 
No Sherlock yeah. Holmes isn't in the story. <laughs> nice try. Yeah, so, you know, I have no idea what to expect, personally. But I, I do think your point about New Vulcan is interesting because I don't think we're really going to get any of New Vulcan in the movie. But we do know from the ongoing comics that New Vulcan exists. And it would be a real waste if they didn't explore that and that aspect of Spock's psyche as well as they move on with the storyline after the movie. And he does say that we're going to see people familiar and unfamiliar travel to a place that's both familiar and unfamiliar. Wow. Very far away where their loyalties are tested and their lives are at risk. So apparently Into Darkness is not... Or, I'm sorry. Apparently, After Darkness is not really any safer than Into Darkness. Apparently not. And apparently, Roberto Orsi is preparing to run for political office with a statement like that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, he's going to be president of the universe. <laughs> oh, man. It's both familiar and unknown. Unknown and familiar. Let's just... <laughs> With people we know, but we also don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So this is going to be coming out. Um, it's about three weeks after the movie hits the theaters. So you won't have to wait very long to to move on with the storyline of Star Trek Into Darkness with IDW's After Darkness. Matthew, let's take a break from news for a moment here and talk about our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and with the new commerce feature that they've introduced, you can even put together an online store in just a matter of minutes. You can be up and running. You know, they've worked out a deal with Stripe to make it very easy for you to accept orders and process credit cards and handle all the different aspects of commerce. There are so many things that you can do with Squarespace. Now, I use it in two ways myself. I use it for my personal blog. I also use it for Trek FM, which is a very large site. Uh, and I use it for uh, some other sites for uh, clients that are a little bit smaller than Trek FM is, but still very robust sites. One of the other things that I really like, Chris, is the fact that you can import seamlessly you know, for me, I, I use uh, a WordPress blog. And so if you're using WordPress or Tumblr or uh, Blogger or Squarespace 5, you can easily import all of that content from those blogs there to help create your brand new blog on Squarespace, which I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time setting up my blog on WordPress. And so I was uh, really excited to see that Squarespace offers you this portability to just be able to take everything you've already done and to be able to move it over to your brand new blog on Squarespace. And then, of course, use all those fantastic tools that Squarespace gives you to make an even better blog. Right. It's a great feature, too, because, as we'll tell you, you can try it free for 14 days. Uh, they don't even ask you for a credit card. But you do have access to this feature during that time. So you can take your WordPress blog and you can import that into your trial site on Squarespace and see exactly how it's going to look. And then you can use the tools, like you said, to tweak it and uh, make it your own. And then you can compare that with your experience on WordPress. Uh, and it doesn't even impact your existing WordPress site. So, so you can try it out. Uh, Matthew, we talked about the commerce feature a little bit at the beginning here. 
And it's really truly never been easier to start selling online than it is with this new Squarespace commerce feature because it lets you add a fully integrated store into your website. And more importantly, it allows you to instantly start accepting payments. And accepting payments is the real kicker because that's what has always been, as I've uh, set stores up for clients, as I've set stores up for myself, that's the big sticking point that always requires uh, research and jumping through a lot of hoops to get it set up and working. Definitely, Chris. And along with that, um, making it very easy to uh, manage your store really painlessly by managing the inventory, processing the orders, making sure that uh, you get to be uh, print out the packing slips, you can customize the emails. Um, and all of these things make it so easy to be able to run your own personal store and what you would like to sell on your website. And all of us, I think, would like to be able to earn some extra money. And this is a perfect way to be able to do that through your Squarespace website. In addition to those points of the commerce feature, I'd also like to point out that you can quickly set up multiple shipping methods. Uh, you can set up coupons, a variety of coupons. And a really big one, which actually can cost you quite a bit of money in having to bring in consultants to set up for you, is dealing with tax rules. Uh, this Squarespace commerce system will automatically handle the taxes that you need to charge on these purchases, because it can get really complex, uh, especially in the United States where you know each state, even each city, county can set their own tax rates. Uh, you've got states like California where they have different tax rates that need to be uh, handled for these online purchases uh, throughout the state. That's all taken care of for you here. So it's uh, just out of mind for you. The system does it for you. You can focus on making great products and uh, selling those through your site. So we'd like to invite you to try this for yourself. It's really easy. Squarespace gives you a 14-day full-featured trial. No questions asked, no credit card. You just go sign up, create the account. Uh, you have access to all the tools. And then when you decide to sign up, Squarespace has an offer for Trek FM listeners. You can get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts by using the offer code TREK4. So the way you do this is you go to squarespace.com slash trek. Do go to that URL to tie it into Trek FM and use the offer code TREK4. And you'll be up and running in just a matter of minutes. I guarantee you, you're going to love it. Squarespace has everything you need to create an exceptional website. And you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring this programming to you each week. Okay, well, uh, while we are talking about comics, Matthew, we have one more thing to talk about in news today before we send everyone over to your interview with James, and that is ongoing number 19, the backstory of Scotty. Now, this came out a couple of weeks ago, but since we didn't do a show last week, we didn't have a chance to talk about it. So uh, let's do that today. I think we've both read it a couple of times now. And we are going to talk about the details of the comic. So here's a spoiler alert. You know, if you haven't read the comic yet, you might want to pick it up, pause this, uh, read it real quick, or jump ahead to the interview with James and come back to this after you've read it. Um, if you have the Enhanced Podcast, there are chapters for this and, you know, for all the topics that we talk about. One of the things that I really liked about this is just the way that it starts. Um, and the highlight, I think, of the beginning here, too, is the artwork. 
uh, really shines in this comic, and um, it's a lot like the beginning of uh, Star Trek Generations. We are on the HMS Enterprise uh, back in a long, long time ago, but not a galaxy far, far away. And uh, we are with one of Scotty's ancestors, who happens to be an engineer on the Enterprise, and they are hurriedly chasing a Frenchman around the horn, and uh, they've run into a storm. And uh, Scotty's ancestor gets to say some great famous lines, giving her all she's got, and things like that. So um, I really like this beginning as the, the kind of the backstory to just Scotty's family heritage yeah, that was nice. I-, I was disappointed that he didn't get to tell the captain that I'll have the sails fixed for you in four minutes, but you don't have four minutes, so I'll do it for you in one. Exactly. That would have been <laughs> great. <laughs> um, yes, That well, and part of that is that, uh, you know, we only get uh, three pages in this, this storyline here, so... Yeah, uh, because the next scene we get is is was really nice, and I, I liked the continuity that we got with um, Kirk's backstory when uh, he was seen in his house after the you know he'd thrown the car over the um, the cliff, and he goes back to his own home, and and he has these same um, holographic models on the ceiling right. as Scotty yeah. does. So I thought that that I was thought really that was cool. a nice. Nice little continuity touch there in the comic. So apparently him and, and Scotty definitely have some similarities in, in their uh, enjoyment of old-time ships. Uh, although Scotty's here are actually quite a bit older than the ones that were in, in Kirk's room. Because in Kirk's right. room, plus, he had Archer's Enterprise. Plus the ones that Scotty is seeing here are ships that his ancestors actually worked on. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's yeah. I think that's really neat. Does <laughs> looking at the houses on the street here and just kind of wondering if uh, Scotty and Kirk maybe lived? Well, they can't live in the same neighborhood because they're in different countries, but maybe the same uh, builders put together these little subdivisions. Um, that, or I thought that <laughs> uh, he looks like he lives on Pivot Drive with Harry Potter. All the houses are oh. exactly the same. <laughs> that would explain why that cat is hanging out right outside the house. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> there's a weird flying motorcycle in one of the scenes. It seemed out of place for a second until I realized it was just Hagrid. <laughs> You notice another interesting little touch here, and I didn't notice this the first couple times I read through this, but uh, Scotty has a Rubik's Cube on his nightstand. He does. his bed. <laughs> and it's not solved. And it's not solved. <laughs> so he, apparently... he probably can solve it in like 30 seconds. So probably his brother comes in and mixes it up every day. <laughs> and then Scotty has to solve it before he can fall asleep at night. That's probably it. Yeah, I like that. Um, what did you think about the just the kind of the storyline that that happened with his grandfather and? Um... I I thought it was nice. I mean, I it's nice to see the influence that parents and especially grandparents and a grandfather has on a on a boy as he's growing up. Um, you know, they have the tie in here with the bagpipes, which um, I guess is kind of corny in the sense that. 
you know, they're making the assumption here that, well, if he's in Scotland, he must play bagpipes. Everyone in the family plays bagpipes and they all wear kilts as they sit around the house reading books. But at the same time, you know, we did see at the end of The Wrath of Khan, in that sense, it is kind of a nice tie-in that, yeah, as a child, he learned to play bagpipes because it's kind of a family thing. And so it was nice. Um, And the idea that he's kind of puzzled and disinterested in repairing a musical instrument. What he really wants to work on is a starship. And I think that that helps to establish Scotty's interest in maybe things that are a bit more complex and also his scientific curiosity, which comes into play a little bit here as well. So you're saying you're not wearing a kilt right now? (laughs) Because I'm wearing mine. It feels breezy. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not because because I'm in Japan. So obviously, I'm wearing a kimono and sipping green tea at the moment. Oh, that's right, laddie. You got the nice silk kimono there. I wish everybody could see it. It's it's great. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, it is funny because you you pointed that out when we were talking before the show. That of course, you know, his grandfather's Scottish. He has to be wearing a kilt. Uh, what else could he be wearing? And uh, he actually is wearing a kilt. And so, um, yeah, very stereotypical, but, you know, it's a comic. I'll let it go. Yeah. Well, they got to set up the the locale. So, uh, you know, as we move through, I did find it interesting that they're building a starship in Edinburgh, apparently. I guess they have shipyards all over the, uh, the, the place. You know, in the Prime Universe, the ships, as I've always understood it, are built in orbit, um, although there is the San Francisco shipyards earlier on in the timeline, then we start uh, seeing ships built in orbit or at Utopia Planitia. So, uh, but the idea of them being built at different locales all around the Earth on the ground is something that's feels kind of new to me in the Abrams verse. But apparently, that's how they do it here. Well, and what I really liked is that you get to that page and it looks like the movie Enterprise from the original movies from the motion picture all the way to Star Trek VI. It does um, kind of, doesn't it? Yeah, the It's very close are... to that yeah. Enterprise, and uh, which, honestly, why couldn't they have given us this Enterprise? I mean, it looks more futuristic and it looks, you know... A little more streamlined, but it it, it just I don't know. I'm I'm sorry. I don't, I'll get off my soapbox for new Treks Enterprise <laughs> and ridiculous yeah. nacelles. But well, what happens anyway is he goes into the ship, little Scotty, and his brother, and you know he sees a way that they should be wiring the bridge differently. And, of course, he gets in trouble for that. And it's the first of many times where he's being told that maybe he's too smart for his own good. And and then we jump ahead to him remembering his first interview with the Edinburgh Recruiting Office to uh, try to get accepted into Starfleet Academy. And here was another, I think, nice continuity, both to what happens later in this comic and then what happened in one of the ongoing comics as well, where he beamed a triple back to Earth. Right. I liked this a lot. Um, I thought it was this was just interesting to, um, you know, this Starfleet recruiter tells him that 
you know, they're, they don't take kindly to breaking anything in the pursuit of scientific progress, which I think is funny because apparently they haven't met Kirk yet. Um, <laughs> well, no, not at this point. <laughs> and, um, that all changes. Exactly. Starfleet really, <laughs> they're so lucky that Scott was with Kirk because Scotty could just be behind him fixing all the things he broke, you know, in, in record time. Um, so they really ended up being a powerhouse team, but I just think this was funny that, um, you know, as young as Starfleet is here, um, they still are, they've already gotten to that point where they're not ready for somebody to be thinking outside the box the way Scott is. And, um, I, I thought that that was just kind of an interesting thing to see in, in this, uh, comic, you know, and basically telling somebody uh, you're just i don't know we we don't want to work with you it's kind of like the add kid that nobody wants to work with but it's probably a genius you know that's scotty here that's scotty yeah and what we see as we move on through here we know from the 2009 movie that he was exiled because of the incident with admiral archer's prized beagle and here in the comic we actually get those events themselves. So he's gonna he he finds the beagle, which is unnamed, I believe, in here, right? Because it wouldn't be Porthos at this point, because Porthos, unless dogs have really really long lifespans in the future. Um, but he finds Admiral Archer's beagle wandering around in the Presidio, and you know that's another question that's never really been answered. Admiral Archer at this point. Is it Admiral Jonathan Archer or is it one of Archer's descendants? Because Archer goes on to be president of the Federation. So that would imply that he, a timeline getting to this point in the 23rd century, he would have had to have been president and after that been an admiral. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that works because they never have truly explained who they're talking about. I mean, we all think that they're obviously talking about Jonathan Archer and that just in this universe, he was never Federation president. And so I, I'm not really sure. He'd be I, really old. Yeah. Uh, he would be like, you know, bones in the beginning of encounter at Farpoint, where he is, you know, what, 140 or something. Something and like so, that. Yeah. yeah. That would, that would be very interesting to, yeah. uh, to have happen. So I was kind of hoping he would actually show up in the comic, and yeah, he doesn't. So we would Sorry. know for sure. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Maybe he will later on. Uh, but but so Scotty finds the beagle wandering around in the Presidio, and he's going to beam it back to Admiral Archer's office. <laughs> Except instead of just beaming it to Admiral Archer's office, he's going to send the beagle to Mars first, then to San Francisco. And what I found funny here is that I think this just shows why Scotty became such a great engineer and became this miracle worker that his mind is always thinking not simply how can I get the job done to just meet the basic requirements of the job, but how can I do something that no one's ever done before? You know, how can I push the boundaries of engineering and science? And I think that's how I've always pictured Scotty and they're setting that up very well here. I think that that's one of the things, too, that I really like is that Scotty is somebody who thinks with his imagination, you know, not just with the logical side of his brain. And they really 
both work together really well. And so by doing that and having that kind of characteristic, it's one of the things that, like you said, this is what makes him a miracle worker because he can put these two things together in a way that other people can't. And um, it really does help him think outside of the box and come up with crazy ideas, but it also saves their life a bunch of times. So (laughs) Right, exactly. So, you know, we move on through there. So then we find out, again, it cuts over to Keenzer. You know, we cut back to the scenes from the movie and then it kind of wraps up. So I don't know, what are your your just overall final impressions of Scotty's backstory? The one thing that I really liked in here was the way that he gets to Starfleet. So, you know, he's working on a cargo ship and the cargo ship comes across a Kelvin type uh, starship that's in trouble and Scotty comes aboard and basically fixed their problem in no time flat. And the captain is very thankful to him. And she says, you know, you should be in Starfleet. I'm going to put a good word in for you with uh, Commander Marcus. And uh, so that's our second mention of, you know, the Marcus that we're going to see who will be an admiral. I thought that was nice, too, that they're they're clearly setting it up in the timeline. So even though this comic comes later in terms of to us from IDW, then Countdown to Darkness, on the timeline itself, you know, they are setting up, okay, here's Commander Marcus, uh, and then he was the first officer with April, and then we know in the movie he's Admiral Marcus. So they're doing a good job of, you know, keeping their threads straight in their story. And I think this one, um, along with the the comic we got on Bones are really been so far my favorites in the background stories. I think they've been the ones that have tried to do the most and give us the kind of a more comprehensive look at their backgrounds and as much information as they can, which is really interesting. We don't know a lot about Scotty or Bones and their backgrounds, so I was really thankful. And this is kind of what I'd wished a little bit more for the Ohura comic, yeah, and I was so, about to say, this did a much better job than the Uhura comic did of giving us some background of the character. So for me, I you know, if I had to rate this, I would probably give it um, seven and a half Keenzers. Oh, gosh. What would you do with seven and a half Keenzers? Uh, well, if I had seven and a half Keenzers, I would just clean up the mess of the half of one. And then I would have the rest of my Keenzers, uh, you know, doing my laundry, cleaning my room, <laughs> <laughs> those kind of things. So it's, they'd be like little house elves. I see. So the next one, uh, so so this was a, it was a very good comic. I really enjoyed this one. And uh, the next one we're going to get is the backstory of Chekhov, where I believe we will just see him attending English classes in Russia as he prepares for his time at Starfleet Academy. That is good. It's hard to understand him. Well, today we're very lucky to have with us uh, James Swallow, who's the author of Stuff of Dreams that has just come out this month. And I'm very excited to have uh, James back. Um, I really enjoyed uh, this novel about Picard and the Nexus. And so I was very excited to get to talk to James. And the last time he was on, if you remember, he didn't get to talk about it too much because uh, we didn't want to give anything away. But so now we'll be able to really dive into this story. And James, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, thank you. It's uh, great to be back on the show. Thanks for inviting me on again. 
Of course, of course. And I have to say, I really enjoyed this. Um, I like that uh, Pocket's doing these small novellas like this in ebook format. I, I think it works really well to give you some really great character stories for, for us as readers, um, honestly, at a great price. So for you, um, one of the things I wanted to know, because it's a, um, a smaller novel. What is it like to kind of go in and write one of the, these shorter ebooks as opposed to, uh, you know, a full length novel? Well, we've been kicking around the idea of having me do uh, a novella length book for quite a while at Pocket, and we talked about doing a few things, including at one point a Typhon Pact kind of spin off novel. Never quite re- found the, the right project at the right time. So it was something that was kind of floating around there in the ether. And, uh, and then Margaret Clark came to me and said, okay, you know, now's the time. Let's, let's do this. You know, I'd like to have you do uh, a TNG novella for us. And essentially the book is, uh, I think it comes in at just under 30,000 words. So what you're looking at there is something that's about a third of the length of uh, a regular Star Trek novel. And so I guess I approached it thinking this is going to feel like an episode of the TV show. That was the kind of model I wanted to aim for. Right. So, you know, even even kind of almost like this five-act structure that um, an episode of, of the TNG TV series would have. I was trying to aim for, for that kind of feel. So that level of kind of narrative beats uh, and that kind of overarching structure. And I think once I kind of got that straight in my head, it, it all just came together. That's great. And I really like these because um, I do feel like in some ways, one, it, it feels like an episode which is a lot of fun. But two, I, I think that they really lend themselves to maybe doing more of a character study than sometimes a whole novel does because you're trying to do so much. You're trying to keep people really engaged. Um, but when you know you have about 100 pages digitally, this really does lead to, to giving you some just great character moments and character discovery without having to worry about keeping our interest for you know a whole you know uh, 80,000 word book and all that. And so I really enjoyed that about this. That's definitely um, exactly where my head was at too. You know, I, this was very get-go. It was going to be a Picard novel. It was always going to be a story about him. And and again, it is something that's like a, a TV show. You know, if you were thinking of a, a novel as being maybe comparable to a feature film, right. if you're writing a feature film about a cast of characters like the Enterprise crew, you know, you want to try and make sure that everybody has a little bit of the spotlight and a little bit of something interesting to do. But if you're doing an episodic story, you know that you could do this week, it's a data episode. Next week, it would be a Riker story. The week after that, it would be a Picard episode. So... I definitely took that model, and I thought this is this fits nicely into the episodic framework, you know, in, in that kind of that, that feel of that that kind of length. And I wanted to write a Picard story because, frankly, I've always found him to be a challenging, difficult character to get into, and I thought it would be interesting for me to try and get my get my hands around him, you know, and, and kind of understand right. how the character works. For you, what is uh, what was the most challenging thing about? getting into Picard's head and, and really try to get his voice on paper, especially since, you know, you can't just look anymore at the shows or the movies. I mean, there's so many books now and continuity. What's that like? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, the Picard has, he, he has changed. He's not the guy that we know from, you know, the end of Star Trek Nemesis. Uh, that's not the man he is now in the novels. And I think in a way that was actually helpful to me 
because one of the things I found uh, with Picard as a character is I always found him difficult to kind of key into. Not that he's not a great character, and, and not that his performance isn't, you know, by Patrick Stewart isn't, isn't fantastic. But as a writer, I always found him really hard to approach, and I just. I, know, I guess I couldn't just find the key to the character, the, you know, the way to get in to express him and, and find his depths. And I think what's happened in the way he's evolved and changed in the novels is that now he is a guy with a family. You know, he's, he's right. married to Beverly Crusher uh, and uh, you know, he, he has a, a son in the form of his little boy, Renee. And I think in a way that, that gave me the door into his character. The, the man that he's grown into, the, the, the difference in his persona... I think that was the thing that, that finally gave me the key to getting into that character and gave me the way to get into him and, and just sort of like find his depths. And, and uh, Stuff of Dreams is very much a story about his changes because it is really shining a light on the, the difference between the man he was in Star Trek Generations and the man he is now several years further down the line. It always seems like to me um, the key to Picard in the tv show and in the movies was his sense of um reserve and and kind of loss at not having the things that he does desire like a family um he doesn't really know how to have those uh and so did you find that for him now the key is being this family man and um you know finally kind of getting that in some way dream life that he's always wanted but he didn't ever think he could actually have yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in a way, he's kind of has his cake and eats it now, you know, because he's got his family enterprise and he's still got the enterprise. He hasn't given up one thing for the other. And I think there's certainly the when Picard goes into the Nexus in Generations, you know, he's a guy with a hole in his life. Right. Very much exemplified at the beginning of the movie by the the death of his brother and, and his nephew Rene. You know, that he's quite literally lost some of his family at the beginning of that film and so he's carrying that kind of that hole in his life around with him and when he goes into the nexus because it's a place that you know speaks to your you know your wants and your needs the nexus shows him this idealized version of 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 a life that would fill in that gap uh and although it's kind of very tempting it's it's kind of ultimately hollow and then when we have the story and stuff of dreams many, many years later, you know, now he actually has that gap in his life filled, but by something real, by, by Beverly and his new son. Right. And so when he travels back into the Nexus, what he sees there is a reflection of that, the fact that he's this different man that he doesn't actually need uh, you know, Dickensian kind of exactly. faux Christmas, fake family. You know, he's, he's moved past that. And that to me was very interesting because it was uh, – a great way to illustrate something that I think we've worked really hard to do in the Star Trek novels, which is build our characters. So often with tie-ins, you know, everybody says, oh, there's a reset button, you know, and you, you read this novel and the character will be the same at the end as he is going in at the beginning. And, and that's certainly true uh, of some tie-in fiction. But I think with the Star Trek line, we've worked really hard to try and create a sense of evolving these characters. And I think Picard is a really good exemplar of how we've done that, certainly in the TNG books. Well, it's really nice that the J.J. universe has allowed um, the authors to really take over the Prime universe and be able to kind of move with it how they would like to without having to worry about then fitting it back into the continuity of a, um, a another movie and, and trying to make all that work. It must be really nice for you guys to be able to have that freedom. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's kind of like in a lot of ways the brakes are off and it's finally we don't have to worry about uh, – 
Paramount looking over our shoulders and saying, well, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. Obviously, you know, we, we can't go completely crazy with it. You know, we have to right. understand exactly how the characters are going to behave. You know, we're going to be true to the, the nature of the universe and we're going to be true to the, the texture of those characters. But you've seen it in every, um, I don't want to use the word reboot, it's not really the right word, but every continuation series that Pocket have done, you know, when, when, when Voyager came back, when Deep Space Nine ended, when Enterprise ended, when TNG ended, when, you know, Riker goes off to the Titan, all these stories that we've done that have built upon the structure of, of prime universe screen Star Trek, we've had the ability little by little to take them and say, well, you know, we're going to evolve with these guys and we're going to take them somewhere else and we're going to, you know, maybe somebody's going to get killed off or they're going to get married or they're going to go off and get their own starship. And it makes it feel, certainly to me, as somebody who's not just a writer of these books, but a reader of them as well, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm invested in a living, breathing world that's not just stagnant. It's not just the same Star Trek over and over again. It's, it's evolving and changing and growing all the time. And that's one of the things I think that's made it such um, an enjoyment, like you said, as a reader for me, is that I know that what happens in these books, especially right now, is what's happening to these characters because they're not going to be seen anywhere else. And so when I read it, I really am invested, especially in the post-TNG um, Voyager Deep Space Nine era because all that's happening there is so important. Like, it's the only place I'm going to see these characters. Uh, and so it makes it so worthwhile to read the novels and get a chance to, to be in these characters' heads. And it's one of the things that I really like. Yeah, it's certainly nice to know that um, we don't have to worry about the fact that we may be contradicted by an ongoing television series. Exactly. When when Enterprise was on, and you know the the initial run of of Enterprise novels were coming out, and and you know they they got a bit of stick because uh, th- those books really couldn't go very far with the characters, and they couldn't really do anything interesting. And it was only after Enterprise got cancelled that things got opened up, and it was suddenly the opportunity came down. Well, you know, let's let's try and do some more interesting things. Let's go to the places that people wanted those characters to go to. And it's it's the same with Voyager, and, and the same with DS Nine, and the, the same with the other series. Is having to work alongside an ongoing series. You know, you have this problem that the what's on screen is always going to trump what's on the exactly. page. And you know, obviously, as readers, we know that. And you know, you might read a thing and go, "Wow, that that story was great," and this piece of background here was really interesting. But then next week, an episode comes up on the show, and it's like, "No, completely contradictory." And so, you know, <laughs> we, we all want everything to kind of marry up nicely and be right. tied into a nice continuity. But that doesn't always happen. You know, there's certainly um, Stuff that I love. I mean, I, you know, going back to the early days of, of, of um, you know, Pocket's golden era of Trek Lit and stuff like, you know, John M. Ford's uh, The Final Reflection, which I still think is possibly one of the best tie-in novels ever written and certainly one of the best Star Trek novels ever written. There's some great stuff in there about the Klingon Empire, which doesn't hold true to the Klingons as they were developed. Same thing with uh, Diane Duane's uh, Rehansu novel. Right. With the way she conceptualized the Romulans. And that's not how the Romulans are now because the TV show went a different way. And it's a great shame that, that was, those books came down the pipe in an era when we couldn't do, we couldn't build on this world. We could only kind of say, well, this is what we think this story is going to be like, but the TV show is ultimately going to go in a different direction and trump it. Now we're in a situation where that's not a problem for us because Star Trek is now um, you know, New Trek. It's, it's Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto Star Trek. And, and that's going over there and that's doing that thing. And now we have a much freer hand to come back and, and explore all the little elements of Star Trek that 
you know, maybe we'd have to be a bit more careful about doing. I mean, certainly we could never have gotten away with, you know, marrying Picard and Crusher and right. letting, letting him have a baby, you know, and, you know, Riker going off and having his own starship and introducing a whole bunch of new characters like we did with the DS9 stuff and, and Voyager, you know, we could never have done that kind of stuff. And certainly you look at the Enterprise novels, if you want to see the most radical kind of um, changing things, look at the end of that, you know, the end of Enterprise, Trip Tucker is dead. Right. Or it, and in the books, we said, well, you know what? Actually, he isn't. We're going you know, to do something completely different because we want to take that in a different direction. We would never have been able to get away with that if, if there was an ongoing Star Trek continuity. Which, honestly, I was so glad when that happened because that was the last thing I wanted to have happen was Trip dead. It just it so rubbed me the wrong way in the first place. And to, uh, when those two authors got a chance to to redo that and make more sense of it. Um, and the way they did it, I thought was perfect. Um, and for me as a fan, it, it made me happy. <laughs> uh, you know, I agree. And, and it's funny. I was actually watching, um, is it, uh, what's the title of the episode? The, the last episode, is it, um, these uh, are the voyages? Yes. These are the voyages. I, I, I was, that was on TV only a couple of days ago and I was watching it and there's the scene, the last scene of trip where he's being pushed into the compartment and he winks at, um, at Archer. And I thought, right. Oh wow! You know he's winking at him. That's because he knows he's not dead. And I'm already thinking, right. like, you know, in my mind, the books are the true continuity now. Right. Uh, you know, I know some fans uh, think that kind of secondary continuity, like books and comic books, you know, that they don't consider it to be true canon, quote unquote. And that's an argument that we could go on and on about. But certainly, I think that as long as it's good storytelling, I'm quite happy to have it personally as part of my well, Star Trek universe. That's for me one of the things that I've really enjoyed about uh, Trek Lit in general. Uh, whereas uh, you know Star Wars Lit um, or some other tie-ins, they really try to make everything work together, and it becomes a huge headache. You know, Star Trek Lit, we always knew this isn't canon. Um, what comes on screen is and it really made it so much more fun to me to read these books because really I, what I was doing is and just investing in characters, um, and I wasn't worried about you know canon issues and and now i definitely don't have to be and i get to enjoy these for me as canon this is this is definitely what i think of as what happens to these characters and uh it, it really is just an enjoyment um and i'm glad in some ways that the prime universe that we know of is at least dead at the moment so that i can enjoy these stories even more than i used to I think what's happened is that because we've moved into this realm now where, you know, the prime universe characters are existing only in, uh, you know, novel and comic book form, the writers have been given a whole set of tools that previously we weren't allowed to have in our writing toolkit. You know, when, we, when the show was airing still, you could write a story about a character and, you know, the, the challenge would be not the, okay, you know, something radical will happen to this character and they'll be forever changed and you could, you know, alter some huge part of their backstory or have a massive revelation. You're never going to get away with that in that kind of novel. So what you had to do instead, the challenge was to shine a light on a facet of that character in such a way that it reveals something interesting of them but doesn't, kind of change anything radical so this the story becomes about the journey not the destination whereas now we have the ability to do that and also change things and have the destination be something completely unexpected mm, precisely and so you know we get to have our cake and eat it well for you um you talked about that uh, margaret clark had, had um come to you and said that they wanted to do this novel and 
Um, you wanted it to be in the TNG storyline. So really for you, what was just kind of the, the genesis and the um, just the thought behind writing this story when, when you first thought of it and then as you kind of put it all out on, on paper? Well, it's a, the, the funny thing about uh, Stuff of Dreams is it actually has a, a very, very long genesis going way back to uh, when um, Generations first came out in the late 90s. Is, uh, originally... It was actually an idea I had for a role-playing game scenario for the Star Trek oh, yeah. role-playing I remember game. you saying that. And that was, uh, I was running a tournament game at a convention, and uh, I was asked to come up with some ideas for some scenarios, because I'd, I'd written a few game scenarios for, uh, for different magazines and what have you. And so, um, after seeing Generations, I can remember thinking, that final scene when you see, the, the, you see Picard on the planet after everything's been sorted out, and you just see the Nexus kind of floating away in space. And that's the last you see of it. And everybody else you know, sorts out their problems and they go on their merry way. And I thought, what, really? Starfleet's just going to leave that out there? You know, right. that's, that's a terrible idea because you know, here's this thing that is essentially this space-time nexus gateway that will allow you to go to anywhere and anywhere. And they're just going to leave that lying around? That's a terrible idea. You know, anybody could get their hands on that. And so, uh, you know, as a Trek fan, you know, we, we spend way too much time overthinking these kind of things. And I thought, well... I guess what, what would be the logical thing is that Starfleet would send a science vessel after this to kind of follow it around, make sure nobody misused it, and maybe analyze it and figure out how it worked. And that was my genesis of this idea for a, for a game scenario about a story set on that ship. So I had this idea in the back of my head about a science vessel and the Nexus. And I, f- I filed that way. And then some years after that, I came across an article... That was it was a, a transcript of an AOL chat that uh, Ron Moore had given, where he was talking about his ideas about creating the Nexus, and he talked about versions of the storyline, versions of the script that um, ended up on the cutting room floor, and you know why was it that there was like an echo of Guinan right. uh, inside the Nexus, and she was outside, and you know was Kirk really in there, or was he an echo? And when Picard left, does that mean that there's an echo of him now in the in the Nexus, and is Kirk's echo still in there, even though Kirk went out, and it was. And he said a couple of interesting things about Soren. He said, well, one of the early drafts of the story had uh, an echo of Soren inside the Nexus as well. Even a scene where Soren goes into the Nexus and meets his echo. Oh, wow. And they kind of, and they kind of have a conversation. And I thought, well, you know, that's an interesting idea. And I really liked Soren as a character. I mean, because I think uh, Malcolm McDowell is a terrific actor. Yes, definitely. And, and you know, I think you know, he is um, sorely underrated, I think, as, as one of the best TNG villains ever. Because you know, him and Patrick Stewart on screen together, I think, are just electric. Yeah, they were just chewing up the screen together. Absolutely. And, and I let, you know, the, that, that lovely moment where he's on a force field and Picard's kind of trying to talk him down. And he has that kind of time is the fire in which we burn speech. And I'm like, oh, he's so awesome. You know, and, and he has that where he's trying to, you know, and he's, he, Picard sort of says to him about his family. And there's that, just that wonderful moment where you, you know, just for a second, you see the man that Soren really was before he became this bitter, twisted, angry guy. And that, to me, immediately spoke to that's interesting story. You know, who was this guy? We only see, you see a flash of him at the beginning of the movie when he's rescued by the Enterprise B, you know. Who was he before he went into the Nexus? You know, was he a decent man? Was, was he a good guy? And was it this experience that, that broke him? And then years later, when we see him in the, you know, the TNG era, he's become this dark character and you know, he's, he's lost the best part of himself. And to me, that was interesting. So 
I wanted to tell a story where I could play around with that, and I wanted to tell a Picard story, and, and just all these things started to just come back together. And I thought, well, you know, the the idea of the Nexus and the science vessel, the of of Soren as you know this version of Soren, the, the the good Soren that never was, or the good Soren that had been lost, and and having Picard and Soren together, I wanted to write those two characters, you know, put them in the same room and write a story about them, and it was all these things just uh, just came together. And Margaret said, you know, do you have an idea? Do you have something? That would work as a novella, and I had this idea, and it, it wasn't there wasn't enough of it to work as a novel. It would right. have been, you know, I've had to put in some extra storyline and, and you know some more sort of subplots to kind of pad it out. And I thought, you know, I want it to be a story about Picard. If it was a novel, it would have to have a lot more stuff, and it would have to be about other people. This to me has to be a Picard story and just a Picard story. So it was a case; it was a kind of perfect storm of all these little elements coming together and fitting in exactly the right place. And that's kind of the genesis of the story. I really love um, the Picard plot here and and just where he's going as a character. I feel like, um, you know, what you were saying, I liked Picard in in the show and in the movies, but I always found him to be so reserved um, and kind of cold in a lot of ways that I I didn't respond to him as well as, say, Kirk or um, even... Uh, Cisco, um, and so giving him a family to me has really just opened up who this guy is. And I think, in some ways, I've seen in, in the last few novels with uh, David Mack series, um, Dayton Ward's uh, Paths of Disharmony, um, all of these books, I felt like I've seen Picard become an even better captain i feel like and an even better man because of his relationship with his family um and i just loved that in this book you, you really see the culmination of that um and uh where do you really kind of see picard going from here well you know you hit on a great point there i think that one of the things that we don't see a lot of um, in the TV series and the movies is he's he's a great human character. You know, there's there's a lot of, of fantastic humanity to Picard, and when it comes out, it really comes out strongly. But but you're absolutely right when you say reserve is 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 a word that totally characterizes him in in the early kind of iterations of the character. And I think by giving him the family, we've been able to to let that human side of him come closer to the surface. And so in the in the stories that we've told recently, because that's closer to the surface, it, it changes the way he reacts to certain situations. And, you know, you, you still have classic Picard still in there. You know, he's still that guy. He hasn't changed completely. But now there's a new shade to him. And there's a new set of, of, of concerns and things that are going on in his head. And I think that makes it a little easier, certainly for me, I think, to write him. And it makes him, it refreshes him for our audience because... You're seeing a version of Picard that you recognize, but he's also got these new shades to him, so there's something new about him, and you can find something else to engage with. And as, as for where he's going to go, uh, well, I could tell you, but then, you know. <laughs> but then you'd have to kill me. But anyway, okay. No, um, I think certainly, I have to be careful here not to hand out any spoilers. We've discussed, you know, because of the, the, the work with the, the fall novels coming up, obviously Picard's one character who's involved very strongly in that. Right. And and where he's going to go, part of that is going to unfold out of the end of the fall and, and you know, the plans for wherever the, the fiction line is going to go after that. I think I think it's going to re-energize him. I think it, it, it reinvigorates him because in a way, 
having a family allows him to do all the things he's done before, but kind of see the world through new eyes, which is, uh, you know, I don't have children myself, but all of my friends who do have children, who do have families, they say, you know, that that, that is part of the, the experience they have, that having kids allows you to see the world in a completely different way, you know, to, to experience it, not just through your children, but also through the way that you are changed as a parent. And I think that's where Picard is going to go from here. And I think that that makes um, it, it it worth the journey to take with him too, because he really is on the final frontier of uh, his humanity. Um, because this is something he hasn't done before. He didn't think he'd do. And, and now um, getting to see where he's going to go is much more interesting to me than if, you know, he had never married Beverly and um, never gotten this opportunity. Cause I feel like, he probably would have just stayed very stagnant w- without this kind of push. And uh, so I, I, I'm really excited to see where he goes. Um, the, one of the things that in the book that I found really interesting is, is just the nexus itself, because this is a really confusing temporal m- mystery to me and how it actually works. So uh, just as the author kind of explain to me your thought process behind how you think the nexus works especially with what you were talking about with you know you've got uh, echoes of people and you can kind of go in and go out wherever and however you can change history i mean um at the end of the book too just um with you know not necessarily wanting to give away complete spoilers for anyone but how that works i mean this is it kind of boggled my mind a little bit so i was just kind of wondering um, how you might explain how you felt the nexus works, and, and especially with your understanding for this novel. Well, to to borrow a phrase from uh, my friends over in Doctor Who fandom, uh, it is a bit wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yes. <laughs> um, the 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 thing about the nexus, that, you know, the, the, a lot of the kind of weird phenomena we see in Star Trek. I mean, the, the Guardian Forever is a really great example of the same sort of thing. Is you know, it's a science fiction device that allows us to put our character into a situation right. to, to kind of to you know use that use this weird concept to kind of pose some bizarre interesting ideas throw your characters at them and say okay how would you deal with that and that's that's exactly from a narrative standpoint that's what right. the nexus does is it allows us to put our characters in an interesting situation and challenge them you know in this case in in, in stuff of dreams you know Picard talks to a guy who he killed right and 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 has a conversation with him about you know Sorry, I had to do that. And it's like, well, and, the, and then, you know, the guy ex- explains to him, you know, this is why I became that man, and you had to do those sort of things. And mm-hmm. that's a, you know, that's an interesting science fiction idea in itself. Uh, you know, as for what the nexus is, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ideas floating around in in Star Trek literature. I know that, uh, yeah, I think in one of Greg Cox's Q Continuum books, he 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 kind of throws out the idea that it was something that Q did in his teenage years as a laugh. <laughs> Just for fun, but it's it's kind of uh, I, I don't think it's kind of definitively said is and, and it's cute after all you know I mean you can't believe a word he wrote. that exactly. may be true it may not be right um, you know there's the something I touch on very briefly in the book is Picard has a conversation with uh, Bryant who's a captain of the other starship that's right. uh, that's following Nexus and they talk a little bit about the you know what do you think this thing is you know you've been in there you've seen it what is it. And neither of them really know. And I didn't really want to explain it. I didn't want to kind of sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write the definitive explanation of what the Nexus is, and this is it. It's going to be cast in stone, and from this point onwards, that's going to be what it is. Because it's more fun if it's a mystery. Right. So what what I tried to do was put 
kind of enough cards on the table and say, well, here's a here's some suggestions about what it might be. Mm-hmm. But I prefer if the reader makes their own mind up about it. You know, I I like the idea of it being a device created in some way, mm-hmm. perhaps by uh, you know. Uh, some sort of like long vanished superior race that invented this thing for a certain reason. They kind of got out of there, got out of control and they left it around, you know, untidily not cleaning up their, uh, their universe changing <laughs> tools after them, after their civilization disappeared, you know, perhaps that's what it is. Or, you know, perhaps it's, you know, if you believe in the idea of, uh, of a creating intelligence to the universe, maybe it's, you know, something left behind like that. Maybe in the story you have, uh, you know, the Kinshaya turn up and they declare that it's a holy artifact. Maybe they're right. Or you know, or maybe it's it could be you know an object from from the far future created by humans. There's a million different possibilities of what it is, and I didn't want to like I said I didn't want to define you know put a draw a box around it. It's much more interesting to kind of leave those questions out there, and and of course it it makes it open for anybody else who wants to come in and tell more stories about the Nexus. As to how it works. Uh, I always saw it as, as kind of I imagined it as being the, the term I used was psychoactive. Mm-hmm. Is it's it's a whatever it's made of reacts to to the way you think and what you feel. So when you're inside, uh, when you cross over Event Horizon, you know it's it's reading your mind. It knows your your wants and your desires, and and it's there to to give you what you want. But it also exists in this kind of bizarre atemporal state where everything is happening and everything you know is 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 in stasis at the same time so you can step back out of it at any time and place in the universe theoretically which is a great yeah that's a great storytelling device and it and it makes for some really you know just interesting things you can do and I, one of the things i thought was interesting for bryant in Picard's uh discussion I, I just thought it was really interesting that bryant definitely has that starfleet prejudice against anything supernatural um and uh you know he gives kind of the starfleet answer oh no 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 it's it's not created by anything supernatural it's you know we will figure it out um which you know is always funny to me when they run into the beings like the prophets or the q and all these things they can't explain and um, yet they're they're so unwilling to say that there's something that they won't actually be able to explain one day with science, as if you know. And that that was totally my intention, you know, because Bryant's characterized as a guy who was an engineer before he was a Starfleet officer, so he has a very kind of reductionist scientific view of the universe. So that's exact that is exactly where he's coming from because he's looking at that going, I don't understand how this works, but you know, if I point my tricorder at it long enough, I'll figure it out. Exactly. You know, and, 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 and he's absolutely adamant that that's the way it's going, to be, it's going to be. But then we have Picard, who is also a scientist, but has seen a hell of a lot of weird stuff in his time and is kind of more willing to say, well, you know, there's more things on heaven and earth ratio than a dreamt of in our philosophy. You know, and he's, right. he's willing to say maybe this is something unexplainable. And that, you know, speaks to the, the central argument they have is that, Brian saying, well, it's this thing and we'll do this with it. And Picard's going, you can't know. You know, you can't say it's going to behave in this way if you do this because it's an unknowable thing. And, you know, we, we aren't as a species at a point where we actually understand how this thing works. We can't apply our rules to it. And whereas Brian's looking at it going, nope, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I understand how this works and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this, this point of view. 
And so it gives me a great opportunity to, you know, put those two points of view across, neither one really confirming which one's right and which one's wrong, and also a, a great kind of a bit of conflict there between these two guys coming from two opposing viewpoints. Yeah, that's that's something that I really thought was interesting in the, in the way that it kind of um, binds together with the end of David Mack's uh, trilogy where they are um, meeting at the captain's quarters there um, and they're all standing around kind of talking about uh, things that they believe in and uh, Picard is beginning to see the universe in a little bit more of a, a spiritual uh, aspect and he, he's really starting to believe in, in something he doesn't really know what it is but he it really has opened up for him a, a spiritual side to his life and I think that that's really interesting um, and it's a great question I think it's something that Star Trek wrestles with a lot um, and I really see it wrestled with obviously in Deep Space Nine with Cisco, the prophets the Bajoran religion um, something that Chris and I talk about on the orb a lot but uh, I really like when Star Trek brings those up, and I like that for you know you there wasn't necessarily an answer. It was just something I picked up on, and I thought was great. Well, that was that was definitely my intention as well to to, to kind of throw that out there because I think that's always interesting to to you know pose the the situation that there is no straight answer to these things, and and that you know you don't really know who's right or wrong about these. But it's in the asking of the questions that we kind of move forward and that to me is a very Star Trek thing is that you know I think it's I think it was was it Cisco I think in, in one of the DS9 episodes where he says we're not just looking for answers to our questions but for new questions right and mm-hmm. it sounds like it's either Cisco or Picard you know it's a, but it's a, that's a traditionally kind of Star Trek kind of answer to things and that I, th- I feel is something that kind of marbles Picard's view of the universe now, mm-hmm. and it was also fun to 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 do Brian having a character, uh, a Starfleet character who wasn't kind of uh, one of Picard's best buddies for a change. Yes, <laughs> because he seems to be best buddies with everyone. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's quite often, uh, you know, uh, you, in fact, to be honest, you see this pretty much in Star Trek when whenever uh, a hero captain meets somebody else, there's always kind of this very much sort of hail fellow, well met kind of situation going on where you know it's oh it's John Luke how are you we were playing cards a couple of weeks ago we're all good jolly good pals and I thought well that's not true because you know it's like everybody's got somebody they work with they just don't get on with and I thought maybe there, there would be Starfleet captains out there who perhaps didn't like the way that Picard did things and you know didn't didn't care for the man and so that's exactly the way I wanted to portray Brian is a guy who he doesn't really like Picard very much um, you know, he respects him because obviously the record that he carries with him. And Brian behaves like this to Picard, and in a way, and Picard feels the same way about Brian. You know, he doesn't really like him very much, but they have to work together because that's the rules, and they're both Starfleet officers. And that immediately creates an interesting tension because these two guys have the same rank, but technically Brian's in charge, even though Picard is the senior officer in terms of of rank and kind of what he's done, and you know, but these two guys are you know at loggerheads and put that together with their differing viewpoints on things and it creates interesting drama between these two characters these two guys with a very different viewpoint bouncing off of each other yeah and that makes for i mean and i think again for me that's one of the things when i think about deep space nine they always did that well as being able to have a couple different viewpoints and and nobody's necessarily shown as being right or wrong all the time it's just you're coming at it from a different perspective and i like that a lot 
yeah, I mean, on DS9, we, you know, you'd have human characters and Bajoran characters and Cardassian characters and, you know, Ferengi characters and what have you. You know, we've got, you've got people, what you've essentially got is Starfleet people and non-Starfleet people. So we could have that kind of melting pot. Whereas in TNG, it's a little harder to do that because everybody you come across most of the time are all Starfleet. Right. So, so and, and, when you, and as I said, you know, when you see Starfleet, most of the time people in Starfleet tend to agree with each other, unless, of course, you're like a Commodore or an Admiral, and then you instantly kind of go cuckoo. And, and it seems like every time an Admiral turns up in an episode of any Star Trek TV series, that's always a recipe for disaster. Right. Um, but I wanted to have a, you know, I just wanted to put a couple of captains in a situation where, you know, there, there are guys out there who, who don't follow the same Picard does. They're not the same kind of captains. I mean, we saw it in the TV show. You look at Edward Jellicoe. It's a good exactly, example. yeah. You know, but he's the really only example of that kind of guy who just has a different way of doing things. You know, and he's not necessarily wrong. It's just he might do stuff in a different way that will, you know, will rub you up the wrong way if you're a guy who worked with Picard. So it was, it was just fun for me to do that. One of the things that I noticed too, and I really, I think, um, made this uh, stand out for me in a lot of ways. And, and one of my favorite Star Trek books in a long time was the. Um, the idea of longing and reality play a big part in this story um, and those themes of, uh, you know, Picard has had this longing for the longest time in his life of, of wanting to have a family, not knowing how to do that and just kind of shutting himself off until finally, you know, he marries Beverly and then they they create this son together um, in the aftermath of the, you know, the Borg just kind of destroying everything and having that create in him this kind of new reality and then having the scientist not be able to face reality because he's lost his dream, you know? Um, and those two interplays really meant a lot to me because as you look at the Nexus, to me, it was kind of this metaphor for what so many people do in life is that you get lost in kind of a false reality um, and it's very easy to do today um, we can do it by hiding behind our phones or our computers and um, creating a whole little world for us but it's not really real um, and how Picard's able to see through that because what life has to offer him whether it's pain or joy he knows that it's better than this false reality and Star Trek does this a lot back and forth um, but I think it, it's more poignant today because of, we can actually create false realities for ourselves and live in kind of a digital world or just in our own selves much easier than we used to be able to. Yeah. I think there's definitely, uh, there's definitely a thread of that in there is the, the, you know, the, the, the fact that the, an illusory world you know, essentially, while while on some level it may give you what you want, it, it is essentially hollow at the end of the day. And it, I think it's a very Star Trek thing to sort of talk about the the strength of human connection. That's what Star Trek's always been, a humanist view of the universe. It's always been about humans banding together, about human relationships, even when it's talking about aliens and, and you know, cosmic stuff. It's still, at its heart, a story about, about human interaction. And I think that there's definitely a thread uh, moving through dreams. It's about that. You know, you were saying about the uh, the, the character Kolb, the scientist. Here's a guy who 
whose family were killed by the Borg. So the family that he has has been torn away from him. And Picard's a guy who's just got himself a family. And so by having those two characters meet, you know, Picard looks at him and sees this, you know, horrible, terrifying thought. He's the, you know, I've got, I now have this wife and son and I have a great family. And, and here's a guy who is an exemplar of what would happen to you if all that was suddenly torn away from you. And, and for Picard, that's, that's a terrifying, you know, soul-destroying idea that that could happen to you. The kind of thing that, you know, just would, you know, keep you up at night. You know, heart-freezing, heart-stopping terror that, you know, your family that means so much to you could be just ripped away and you'd be left bereft. And, and, and that's what happens to Kolb. And Kolb is this guy, is essentially, he's the avatar of that terrible possibility. So Picard mm. looks at him and thinks, you know, if, if I was in his shoes, would I do any different? You know how, and, and 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 looking at that guy, he you know I think he also comes to realize again how important his own family is, and it's you know it touches on questions of of uh, you know of mortality as well. It's like you know right. we never know how long we have with the people that we care about, so every moment is precious. And if you spend that not with them, but in you know a, a, dis, a dislocated kind of fantastical realm, instead of actually being with the people that you care about, when they're gone, you'll miss that opportunity. So. That's a thing that speaks to every one of us, anyone who has a family or people they care about. Well, and it reminds me so much of the end of Generations and Picard saying that, you know, cherish the time you have because, you know, that moment, it's never going to come again. And uh, I, I think Picard really uh, comes face to face with that in this book again with his family and realizing that every moment's precious and I'm going to spend every moment I can with them. And, and I loved too that you know when they they meet in the arboretum in the end and instead of a holodeck and you know he says I'm I'm just tired of illusions and the the reality and the warmth of of being next to a real tree as opposed to you know a, a holographic one it, there's just something different um, yeah I, th- I think it's a, it's you know he realizes that you know if you were on on a holodeck everything would be perfect right. Even if, you know, you, you programmed it to be realistic, you know, you, you'd sit there, you know, having a picnic uh, in a park and you wouldn't have to be, worry about being bothered by wasps. Right. Or, you know, ants crawling on your sandwich or the fact that, oh, I forgot to, I forgot to pack that, that, that flask of tea, you know, all those kind of things. None of that would happen if you were on a holodeck. Everything would be fine. But if you went out on a picnic on a real park, you know, that you might actually get bugged by wasps or, you know, ants crawling on your, on your, on your sandwich and what have you. And I think what he realizes is in that moment, he just wants the kind of the little the little things that make reality real, the little things that don't work, the little things that go wrong. That remind us that that we're human. Yeah, it all it also reminds me of uh, you know the great scene from Star Trek V where Kirk talks about how he needs his pain. Um, oh yeah, very very much so. That was that was again something that was was kind of going through my mind you know that that whole sequence that's one of my favorite Kirk moments you know where um Cyborg is saying well I can take this away from you and, and Kirk says to him you don't understand is we need to have this is this is a part of me the, you know just as much as the joy in my life this is a, my pain is a part of me and I think Picard's looking at the same sort of thing not in such an ex- extreme situation but it's definitely coming from the the same place that you know you need to have the reality of your life there to truly live Right. Well, and it's, you know, pain is really what molds us the most, you know, in in a joyful situation, 
that doesn't usually teach me anything, but it makes me content. But pain has a way of just really molding us and making us um, usually, hopefully, if it's done well, if we react to it well, it helps make us better people. And certainly in the course of this story, you know, the, the, the character of Kolb is a guy who, right. who is, is running away from his pain. Right. You know, has had this terrible tragedy happen to him. And instead of, of kind of addressing it head on and, and, and sort of assimilating it into himself and moving on, he's, he's trying to find a way to undo it. And he's trying to find a way to, to sort of create this idealized fantasy inside the Nexus where, you know, none of that actually happened to him. Right. And it's Picard who comes to him and says, you know, you can, you know, this is what you're doing here is you're essentially, you're living the lie. And not only are you doing that, but you're, you're doing a disservice to the people that you've lost because you're making their, what they were, you're, you're disrespecting what they were because this illusion is not them. And in the end, what he, you know, he, I think the lesson he teaches, whether he wants to or not, to, to Kolb is that you have to tackle your pain head on. Yeah. And that, at the end of the story, that's exactly what he does. And I think that's, for me, what really made this a powerful story is one seeing the way that Picard is changing and growing as a character honestly is it touched me in a way that helped me kind of think about some things in my life um, that and where I maybe have you know tried to run away from things instead of just kind of face them head on and let them kind of shape me and mold me into something better and um, this is the best of what Star Trek can do asking these kind of questions and helping us see a character kind of work through them can actually impact our own lives. So I really appreciated that. Uh, and, and for me, it, it's really what made this a standout story in Star Trek lit. Well, I, thank you very much for that. I mean, I, I certainly feel that, you know, issues in my life are being expressed through the way I tell my, you know, you, if you're a writer, you always do that. You know, whatever you're writing, part of you, you can't help but put part of yourself through that. And certainly, you know, as I get older, I find myself looking at questions of mortality and yes. you know, where my, where my future is going to lie, you know, the, the, the fate of myself, but not only my, my, my friends and my family, you know, all these things. You can't help but, but not think about these things. And what Star Trek is always brilliant at doing is uh, holding up a, a funhouse mirror to, to the real world for us, is giving us the opportunity to, to examine issues that maybe if we tackled them head on in our own lives, we would find it difficult. Star Trek gives us a lens that we can view those things through and, you know, look at characters that we understand and empathize with and see how they address it. And then, as you say, you know, it back into our experience and, and maybe we can use it to, to consider how we would play out those experiences in our own lives. And that's, that's one of the things I've always loved about Star Trek is I felt that it has that human core to it. You know, it is the human adventure and it does mm. have something to, to say to all of us. Definitely. James, uh, wanted to know, um, you know, what are you working on now? I know you've been working in the fall series. Um, anything in that that you can kind of uh, let us know about? Of course, when that'll be coming out, uh, what we can look forward to. Well, what can I say? Um, I'm I'm very busy on on book four of the fall right now, uh, the Poison Chalice. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, this is going to be a, a big mini-series that's basically touching on all of the kind of TNG, DS9 era stories. So we're getting, we're going to have characters from Deep Space Nine, we're going to have characters from the Titan books, we're going to have characters from the TNG novels. 
Uh, first one is Revelation and Dust. That's being written by David III. Second book is, well, that, that's uh, set on DS9. The second book is Crimson Shadow. That's going to take place mostly on Cardassia. That's got some uh, uh, TNG Enterprise, Enterprise E crew characters. And that's being written by Una McCormack. Book three is A Ceremony of Losses, being written by David Mack. And that has um, some other DS9 and TNG characters in it. Book four is The Poison Chalice, which I'm writing, which has mostly Titan characters, but a few other people dropping in as well. So it's not kind of exclusively a Titan novel. Oh, excellent. Uh, it is, you know, it, all of the books are kind of drawing in characters from all, all places. So it's not really kind of, okay, this is, you know, this is an Aventine story. This is a TNG story, Enterprise story. This is a Titan story. It's, it's kind of a bit more diffuse than that. Excellent. And, and following up that is book five, which is being written by Dayton Ward, and that is uh, Peaceable Kingdoms which uh, I believe has uh, Enterprise and Aventine crew and a few other people as well. And I'm busily way through uh, Poison Chalice right now. It's a lot of fun. Um, we're all trying to kind of bring something to this series, I think, in each book mm -hmm. that gives it a very different texture. Okay. I, I've read the, the first two books in the series, and I'm very impressed by the quality of the work that David and Yuna have done. Um, and I've just got um, a copy of Dave Mack's manuscript as well to read, so I'm looking forward to getting to that. Um, certainly I realized after looking at their stuff that I'm going to have to raise my game to do something really cool because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of all singing, all dancing stuff going on here and we're all trying to bring something a little different to it. It's a, it's a big political thriller. It's all based around, uh, a huge event that, that has massive ramifications, a, a big shockwave through the, the, the political structure of the United Federation of Planets and, and their relationship to, you know, the Typhon Pact and all the other, um, uh, nation states in the Star Trek universe, and it will it will shake things up a bit. And by the time we're done, I think it will point things in uh, a new direction. So I can't really say more than that. No, that's great. Um, I'm really excited. I'm really I'm really happy to be a part of it. It's it's been great working with the uh, with the team as well. This is the first time I've worked on a Star Trek novel that has you know has been so heavily meshed in with everybody else's stuff. Uh, you know, previously when I did Day of the Vipers, that was the lead into a trilogy written by two other writers, but we really kind of tackled those almost as standalones. But with this, it's been lots of toing and froing and making sure that characters are in the right place that we can have, you know, if this guy's here on this planet and we can't use him in that story, right. so we have to make sure this is that. And it's been very complicated, but in a, in a fun way. And I've had some really great conversations with the other writers. You know, it's, it's really good to be in a room with a group of, of creative people like that because you feel like it's almost a geometric progression of, of how creative you are. It's not kind of like, you know, X plus Y, it's X plus Y squared, you know. And, oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you, you, it's almost, I guess it must be like uh, when musicians talk about jamming, you know, when they just get together yes. and start noodling mm -hmm. around on ideas, they come out with a melody that you wouldn't expect. It's very similar to that. That's kind of the feeling I got from it. So it's a really fun experience. Yeah. I hope it I hope it comes out well at the end of the day. We have to make sure that everything kind of dovetails. That's gonna be the hard part, making sure it all connects up nicely. But I'm really looking forward to the finished the finished product. Well, I can imagine that would be just a great room to be a part of. I, you know, having talked to all of you individually, um, I can't imagine what it'd be like to just sit there and throw around story ideas and you know get to come up with something like this and so i i can't wait because this this really feels like a an awesomely epic crossover for tng ds9 in a lot of the ways that a lot of fans have always kind of clamored for so really excited to see that happen 
I think the, the, the phrase that kind of turned up most when we were discussing this was where someone would probably say, wouldn't it be cool if... Oh, good. Dot, dot, dot. That's always good to hear as a Star Trek fan. A lot of that sort of stuff coming on. So, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in recent novels, the, the focus, I think, has been a lot on the kind of the politics of the Federation and the intrigue that's going on there. And, and that's interesting. Um, and I think we're going to, in a way, we're, we're probably going to kind of bring that to a close. Not to say that we aren't going to do those kind of stories in the future, but I think we're going to... This almost feels to me like the kind of... I don't like the end of the season. You know, oh, it's, like we're, it's, like, it's like we're building up to a big kind of... Not a kind of cliffhanger ending, but, but this is almost like this, this, these five books will be like the final movement in, in, in this kind of opera, this symphony of stories that we've been telling over the last kind of two or three years is that we're going to kind of move to a point of closure and say, okay, now we've done that. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to do this different thing, and we're going to we're going to go out with a bang, you know. Oh, and awesome. that's that's kind of where the fool is. That's great, and and for me, I'm I'm excited because um, you know I'd love to have a little bit more of the compartmentalization, or just you know, okay, let's let's do some Deep Space Nine specific stories and TNG stories, and you know, break off with some Aventine stories and Titan stories. Um, because I'd love to see some of the things with those specific crews, but I love the fact that we're going to get this amazing epic story. And um, like you said, I, f- I feel like anyone who's been reading Star Trek books has kind of felt this building for a long time. So I can't wait to read it. And, and I think after we've done that, you know, it, it's like all these plot threads. You imagine them all kind of coming together and meshing, and then they're going to they're, they're going to pass through this story. And I think you know you will see. DS9 stories, Avatar stories, you know, Enterprise stories. You will see individual stories of those characters going off and doing their own things. But at the same time, we're going to still keep that level of cross-connectivity because people really respond to it. Right. It gives you a feeling that not these – these stories aren't happening in a, in a vacuum. It's kind of silly to say because they're space stories. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, you, know you, you get a feeling that uh, – I think this, this is something that the, the earlier books suffer with. You know, we were talking earlier about uh, – back in the day when you were competing with an ongoing TV series, I think there was a feeling that you'd read a novel and it's almost like, well, that novel happens in this little bubble and that's right. that. And the next novel happens in a completely different bubble. And we've worked really hard to make sure that that doesn't feel that way now. So, you know, you'll have a character on, on a ship in one particular story and they'll refer to an event or a character on a different ship. And, and you know, you get the feeling that, here you are in a story, let's say it's a TNG story, uh, somewhere on the other side of the galaxy, there's an Aventine story going on, and these things are happening simultaneously. And the world goes on around these characters. And maybe you don't want to read the Aventine novel because you're not interested in that, but you still get the feeling that that's part of the world. You get this larger tapestry of, of things taking place. And I think that can only strengthen the line, strengthen the, the, the contiguousness of the Star Trek universe. And that's definitely something that that I like both and, you know, having both, uh, I think it works well. And I, you know, I review all the novels now, so I read them all anyway. So it makes it rewarding for me to get that. Um, And, uh, you know, for anybody else who's kind of a completist with the novels, I'm sure that they feel exactly the same way. And so that's great. Um, One of the things that uh, I would love to know, too, just before I let you go is, uh, have you been reading anything good recently, Um, just that you've picked up at maybe a, a, a bookshop or something like that? Well, like I said, I've been uh, you know beavering through the the previous books in the full series, uh, which are really cool. You guys are going to love them. 
I can't say anything about those. We're all jealous because you've already read them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been too busy working, really, to be honest. To be honest I understand. To, to read any other stuff, but I have, uh, you know, I have my massive pile of books that uh, I'm, I'm meaning to return to at the Excellent. moment. Uh, I've just actually been sent a, a copy of a book by a friend of mine, Richard Dansky, who's written a horror vaporware, which I'm really looking forward to reading, which is uh, a horror novel about a video games company, about haunted evil video games, which sounds like oh, a really nice. Good and and he's uh, you know he works in that industry as well, as do I, and I'm looking forward to uh, to reading that. I'm sure it'll be a great laugh. That's great. Well, uh, James, before um, you do go, please let everyone know uh, where they can follow you and and just keep up with all the goings on of, of James Swallow. Sure thing. Well, I, I'm on uh, Live Journal and Blogger, um, both under the name Red Flag. Uh, I think one is, Blogger is uh, James Swallow at blogspot.co.uk, I think. I can never remember the URLs of these things. Uh, and uh, my Live Journal is uh, jmswallow.livejournal.com. Or you can just follow me on Twitter, which is at jmswallow, and I post on there quite frequently, and I try my best to be witty and clever. Excellent. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll definitely be having you back when um, your newest book in the fall comes out. Well, well, Matt, thank you once again for, for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure. It's it's great to just talk about Star Trek uh, and Star Trek writing. You know, I'm I'm so happy to be able to to do something that I love, and I appreciate having the opportunity to just. Uh, chat with you guys about how much fun it is <laughs> well thank you so much and you have a good night you too well matthew that was a wonderful interview you did with james there i really said i wasn't able to join in it's really tough when we deal with authors who are in england because we have to balance you in texas the author in england and myself in tokyo it's just really tough but i really enjoyed listening back during editing and, um, you know, how did you feel about talking to James? I had such a great time talking to James. I really do uh, enjoy our conversations. It's one of those things that's funny. I, I think we probably talked for an extra 15, 20 minutes after we stopped recording just about some things that we couldn't talk about on air about his newest series, The Fall. All I can say, folks, is it's going to be fantastic. I didn't get too much, but... Man, it's going to be really good. Um, they have had the best time, him and Dayton and Una and David and David putting all that together. Um, and the more he talked, the more I was excited. And so this is going to be an epic series this fall. Uh, and so I want everybody to be ready for it, one, and two, to really support this series. Uh, because it's really going to have a big impact on what will come after uh, in Treklet and where Treklet will go next. And so this is really important, and so I really hope that everybody will uh, read and enjoy these books, which I think they will. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to get everyone together. You know, Una was just with us on the Orb last week to talk about Garrick, and at the end, you know, she mentioned that she hopes we are able to get the whole gang together to talk about the fall once the series is out. So um, hopefully we'll be able to bring that to everyone here on Literary Treks. Yes, that would be great. And plus, you know, getting to talk about the stuff of dreams, it's a short novella, but honestly for me, it was very impactful uh, as a storyline and uh, what uh, James had to talk about through Picard and the the story with the Nexus there I thought was very poignant and and, uh, personal for me, but also something really important in, in our world. 
Um, and so just getting to talk about that book and, and him writing it and coming up with the story and getting to kind of dive into Picard as well, it was a lot of fun. And so again, you know, James is fantastic and I'm so glad anytime that he can be on with us. Yeah. Getting to dive into Picard is fantastic. And I've, I think I've heard Beverly say that a few times. You know, I think she did. And I'm pretty sure that <laughs> Kate is going to have a field day when she hears that. <laughs> I bet she sure is. All right. Well, let's tell everyone where to find us if they would like to share their thoughts on anything we talked about in news, on the Visual Dictionary, on Ongoing 19, or on James's novel. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and send a literary treks. That'll come to us. You can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There is a section for literary treks. There's also one for books and comics. And uh, you can start a thread, join into other discussions, talk about anything you'd like to talk about there. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, on Twitter under username trek.fm. Matthew, what if people want to find you personally? Well, if you'd like to find me personally, I'm on Twitter at MattRushing02. And then, of course, we also do The Orb together, our Deep Space Nine podcast uh, here on Trek FM. And then, as well, doing the book reviews like uh, James's newest book, The Stuff of Dreams. You can find that. Uh, check that out. Let me know what you think, too. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of feedback necessarily on the reviews, but... When you, if you've read the book, let me know what you thought of it, whether it's on Twitter or on our forums or comments uh, underneath the review. Um, I'd, I'd love to have more discussion around the books. And the last thing I wanted to say, too, is I really wanted to thank um, some of the people who've just recently given us five-star reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate it, guys. Uh, it does help people find the show right now. We have a perfect five-star rating. So again, I really just want to say thank you. Yeah, and some fantastic written reviews as well. We, we really appreciate your kind words and the fact that you're enjoying the show and and uh, helps us to, you know, encourages us to strive and bring you more and more great comics and books and news each time. Uh, we'd also like to invite you to support our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create professional website, blog, portfolio. And, you know, if you're an author, if you write short stories and you want to sell those, you can do that with the new commerce feature as well. You can very easily set up an online store for your work. And you can try it all for free for 14 days. Just go to squarespace.com slash trek and use the offer code TREK4. Uh, you sign up. You don't need a credit card. You just put in your name and email address, pick a template, and you go. You get the full features for 14 days. And then when you sign up, use offer code TREK4 to get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. And that's Squarespace. And you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring you literary treks each week. And Chris, you didn't tell everybody where they can find you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y and the letter C at the beginning. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username. And elsewhere on the network, you can find me each week doing The Ready Room, where I am sometimes joined by Matthew, as well as many other hosts from around Trek FM, and a lot of other guests as well. So uh, check us out over there, trek.fm slash TRR. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. And as always, live long and read on. 
What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one. 